Hello and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show about sports, art, and the creative space they share. My name is Abigail Smithson, and as always, I am your host. And I really wanted to start today with acknowledging um, this devastating helicopter crash that happened on Sunday and just uh, reading off the names of the people who died in the crash. Kobe Bryant, Gianna Bryant, Sarah Chester, Peyton Chester, Era Zobayan, Christina Mauser, John Altobelli, Carrie Altobelli, and Alyssa Altobelli. I hope to unpack more about the situation in the future and to talk more about it uh, in a thoughtful way. And for now, it felt really important for me to acknowledge their names and acknowledge the trauma of this event on their families. And uh, because of uh, Kobe Bryant being a household name, how that trauma has um, moved beyond just uh, the people who knew him best and the, the sadness has uh, is just occurring in many homes and, and places all over the world. So uh, it felt important to recognize that and to say that, um, yeah, I hope to, to share more um, about it in the future. Today's guest on the podcast is Gail Buckland, who is an author, educator, and curator of photography. She has held the position of curator at the Royal Photographic Society of Great Britain, as well as the Benjamin Menchel Distinguished Visiting Professor at Cooper Union. She is the author and collaborator on 14 books of photography and history, and she's the curator of a number of exhibitions. Her book, Who Shot Sports, which is paired with an exhibition of the same name that was first shown at the Brooklyn Museum, is a survey of sports photography from the invention of the camera to almost present day. Gail Buckland honors the men and women from around the world who make compelling imagery of sports, often overexerting themselves, always thinking critically, and trying to compose the most thoughtful images. The pictures in the book range from portraits of athletes to abandoned Olympic sites to the pensive in-between moments of preparation and recovery. This book is beautiful and educational and makes you think more about the artist behind the image. Thank you to Gail for coming on the show and sharing her work with me. Today's episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's. And I'm so excited to announce that Gail Buckland's book, Who Shot Sports, is available at all six Bookman's locations in Southern Arizona, the three in Tucson, one in Phoenix, one in Mesa, and one in Flagstaff. Bookman's is an amazing organization that gives back to their community in many ways, including supporting local artists just like me. Purchasing this book is a way for my listeners to give back to Bookman's and get a beautiful book that perfectly encompasses the marriage between sports and art. Buckland's book is both visually stunning and incredibly informative. I recommend it to sports fans and artists alike. For more information on locations and hours, please visit www.bookmans.com. And remember, Bookman's has cool covered. Anyway, how did you start your blog and focus not exclusively, but a lot on basketball, right? Yes. So I have loved basketball for a very, very long time um, as a fan. I mean, I, I played a little bit, but I'm not a super uh, directly competitive person. So I'm the opposite of Kobe Bryant, essentially. Like, I don't want anyone competing against me that I can uh, sort of in the same space. Um, so I, I never enjoyed playing organized basketball that much, but I really loved watching and I felt really emotional about watching. And I, mm-hmm. I sort of, um, you know, the highest highs and the lowest lows with your team and... Um, anyways, I, uh, so I, yes, I've been following basketball since I was a kid. And when I was in graduate school studying photography, something clicked. And I all of a sudden was like, what if I, what if I, you know, treated basketball kind of as my muse and really, um, responded to it through my artwork. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that too much before. And then I found all these other people who are, you know, incorporate sports into their work. And I just... I don't like this idea that is often presented that 
Well, the arts, uh, capital A, or the fine arts are in a separate sphere culturally than sports. Um, and I think that's to both of their detriment. I think that we can get more when we put push them together. We can understand each of them better and that galleries and museums can feel like very exclusive spaces sometimes. And as can sports podcasts or arenas or or, or baseball fields, if you don't know the rules or if you don't know the latest thing that happens, sometimes you can feel left out of those uh, conversations. And so I wanted to create some kind of space where we can talk about all of it and we can care about all of it. We can care about the, you know, the capitalistic monolith of the NBA that makes so much money. And we can care about like the the pop-up show that someone's doing uh, at, a, at a random space um, and that those things can add to each other rather than take away from each other, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very much what Who Shot Sports is about. Um, I, I, I feel that there are these hierarchies and often people actually don't even enter a museum because they think, it doesn't belong to them. Yes. You know, it's of interest to, you know, people who have some elevated idea of what art is. But I think with my background, you know, as a photo historian, I can I can enlarge my field of photo history and show that, you know, a great photograph is a great photograph no matter why it was taken, whether it was taken, you know, of a rock band or on um, a pitch or a playing field or behind the scenes and then to take it further to ask, well, who are these people who are giving sports its image? Um, Because the focus is always on the athletes, but the athletes do create, um, you know, the, the photographers do create and help the athletes create their image, Um, whether it's as this brilliant athlete, you know, performing some unbelievable feat, you know, on the field, or, you know, like that back of the, you know, back, you know, behind the scenes picture of Kobe with, you know, his feet in igloo coolers filled with ice, you know, Um, so... I think that you know. The, I, what, are we? Are going to tape it for the podcast? How is oh, it going to work? Ha, I have been recording since we started because okay. um, I had to test the sound, and then we just started talking, and I got distracted. So, oh, so is this okay yeah, just to talk? Yeah, it's okay just to talk. I mean, I think, I, of course, I have my questions and my thoughts, but I think so far, doing it this way is really great. Oh, okay. Um, so. I mean, with my exhibitions, um, often people who never would come to an art museum come because they strongly identify with sports. They love sports. And people who were cute, they called it the perfect um, date because women who enjoy art museums could bring their boyfriends and their husbands who maybe would have preferred home, staying home watching a game so <laughs> and they all came point. to see the show and learned a lot because it's a different type of information. Um, my, my work is really about looking at the image and how the image works on the viewer emotionally, psychologically. Um, it's not about the defining moment when Team A or Team B you know, gets the final dunk and wins the game. It's more about the flow and movement of the bodies and how that can be captured in all its greatness, not, dis- not in a way dissimilar to, say, a great historic painting when you have all these figures coming together and yes it may have been you know the Napoleonic Wars that the painter was trying to depict but what he was really trying to depict is when you have generally young men but often young women now too 
but all moving together for a cause and how those bodies interact and how you spread that across the picture plane so that it's memorable, so that, it, you know, it's, an, it's a, a picture that lasts. It embeds in the, in the mind and it, it stays with you. And my job as a photo historian and as a curator is to try to understand why particular photographs have that power. And at the end of the day, of course, it's my selection. Um, one of the questions you asked me is, you know, how do I make a selection? Um, because there are, there are thousands, millions of pictures. Yes. And I do look at thousands of pictures. And ultimately, I just base it on my experience working on you know, more than 14 books and television shows and exhibitions. You know, first of all, I have to fall in love with the picture. I have to truly love it. Then I have to ask myself, well, why do I love it? And then I have to let it, you know, kind of simmer and go back to it. And is it still as powerful and as meaningful as I remembered upon seeing it the first time? And certain pictures will hit you immediately, and then they lose their edge. And other pictures you really would want to live with. They they keep on giving, and that's often the definition of art. You mm-hmm. know, something that you can't get all that information in one glance. There's, there's a mystery, there's a richness, there's a beauty, there's a harmony, there's a tension, there's a, uh, you know... You know, a lot of photography is um, borders on the metaphysical. We, we actually don't really ever understand that why an image feels transcendent. Mm-hmm. But yes. even the most muddy footballers, you know, in the 1950s, you know, can be part of an image that seems just transcendent, something about man and gravity and mud and the light coming through, you know, the clouds and all of a sudden it it it's it's totally beautiful. And then you ask, well, what does it tell us about sports? And I I think that you know, that's a harder question, but in ancient Greece the greatest artists depicted the greatest athletes. And then there was this real lull because artists were not getting the body right. And photography has, from the invention, has striven um, to stop the body in motion so that we can understand how we move as human beings. And this is always one of the objectives of photography. How do you stop motion? And then you realize, well, who are the most beautiful movers? <laughs> you know, they're the dancers and the athletes. And there's a big audience for athletes. So photographers were always pushing the technology so that they could stop these bodies in movement to analyze how they move, how they play. And so photography and sports has really had a very long and wonderful history together. And nobody nobody looked at it the way I did. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so I, I do believe that who shot sports is a major contribution to the history of photography, but also the history of sports. Right, and that creating that sort of meeting point where they can exist side by side, which there aren't that many of. No, I mean, if you look at Sports Illustrated books, they're generally great photographs. There's no question. But the emphasis is generally on the game or the athlete, um, you know, 
And these are important moments in sports history that are often photographed very well. But I wanted to shift the emphasis to the photographers. And a lot, I mean, I have a lot of Sports Illustrated photographers in my book. And they were just so pleased to have somebody see where they can be placed in a larger history. In other words, they do work on the shoulders of their predecessors. And I tried to tell the whole story, give the whole arc from the invention of photography right up to the present and how how professional these photographers are, how they work as hard as the athletes to master their discipline. I mean, when sports photographers go to the Olympics, before they go, they're generally in training because it is so physically exhausting, you know, running up, you know, ski slopes or dashing between one, you know, race and another or getting in your position, waking up so early um, so that you make sure you get the light just right by being the person who gets, you know, the right angle Um, because everybody can, you know, photograph the width, the, the final of the race, you know, crossing the finish line. But who can get the right angle? Who can get the frame? Who can get what I call, call the decisive moment, which isn't just the winning, but when all aspects of the picture come together in some harmonious whole. Um, and so these are enormously skilled and dedicated men and women and really, they—I don't want to say they're treated like hacks, but I don't think the complexity of their craft is generally um, acknowledged. And now there's a crisis in sports photography because the newspapers often have let go of their own um, sports photographers as newspapers close. Um, sports, sports Illustrated, which was I mean, in the title, it's Sports Illustrated. They had to have staff photographers, have no more staff photographers. Everybody just picks up pictures um, from this wire services off the Internet. They do it on the cheap. And often the pictures are very good because the cameras have gotten so good. I mean, in the early days of photography, I mean, you had to be able to follow focus. You know, the camera didn't focus for you. Before that, you might have 12 glass plates. I, I spoke to a, the son of a famous sports photographer who told me that his father never understood why you would ever need more than 12 pictures of a Super Bowl because <laughs> if you knew what you were doing, you could get 12 great pictures. Right. <laughs> now, you know, God knows how many thousands will be taken next week. Um, each photographer will probably take 7,000, 10,000. I mean, oh, they just yeah, keep on shooting. Easily. Yeah, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that they're better. Um, but so the field, field has changed very much, and I felt it was time when I did Who Shot Sports, the exhibition in the book, to salute these photographers because they're going through hard times too. I mean, all the sports illustrated photographers were very, at that time, either had been left let go or thought they were going to lose their jobs. Yes. And I think that it's so, it's important to, because I think that when we, when I think about sort of iconic sports photography, not all the image that, images that come to my head are necessarily included in this book. And I think that's because you've chosen the um, to go to look at it through the eyes of the photographers where that moment in sports might be iconic, which makes the photograph iconic versus the photograph making the moment iconic, if that makes sense. Exactly. And I'm I'm a little wary of um, iconic anyway. I think sure. you're right. It was not a priority of mine um, when I went 
too sports illustrated to say that I was going to do this book. They practically kicked me out. They said, this is ridiculous. Nobody can do this except, you know, Sports Illustrated. We know all the iconic photos. (laughs) Right. That's great. You know them. You've published them. People know them. But we can't keep on regurgitating the same pictures. Um, We can remember them. We can, you know, um, they trigger our memories of great moments in sports history. But I'm, I'm doing something else. I'm talking about sports photography really as art photography. And, you know, art is always loaded, but I stand by my selections because ultimately how I chose a picture was because I thought it was an exquisitely powerful, beautiful, rich image that would hold up whether you cared about a particular athlete or game or not, that you would look at these and say, I'm learning something about the human condition. I'm learning something about, you know, why people love sports. If there was any measure that I used, it was not because the moment was iconic in sports history, but because the picture helps us understand why people love sports. And that is what I was aiming for, that it would help illuminate the total craziness that people experience (laughs) when their team wins or loses or when they go berserk, you know, I mean, that's called, you know, fanaticism or fanhood. And you can be crazy in the same way if you live in, you know, Philadelphia or in, you know, Bangkok or in Mumbai. I mean, you are totally bound by this tribal instinct that is very human and very universal. So which pictures can help illuminate why so many people are so passionate about sports? And I think many of them see great beauty in sports, great beauty and honor in the athletes. And so, you know, my book is, my book is divided um, into portraits and um, vantage points. You know, the photographer is helping us see things we could never see from the stands or even from our living rooms watching it on TV. Great portraiture, um, behind the scenes, fans and followers. Um, The Olympics I included because the best photographers in the world compete at the Olympics. Uh, I do a history of sports photography that starts incredibly early, 1843. Photography was only announced to the world in 1839. Um, So when there was no movement, but there was sure attitude in the first sports photograph ever made. Um, And so I'm proud of the book. I'm proud of the research. It took many, many years. The sports photographers were just so excited to be in an art museum. Um, Al Bello, who's the chief um, sports photography, Al Bello, who's the chief sports photographer for Getty Images North America, I called him about three times. And finally he said, look, I think you have the wrong number. I'm Al Bello, the sports photographer. Um, <laughs> and you're telling me you're curating an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. I said, no, I have the right number and you're the right person. I am doing an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum and I'd love you to be part of it. And he said, you know, like, 
really? I used to go to that museum when I was a kid. I never thought I'd have work in there as a sports photographer. Yes. And I said, well, it's changing. And and so, you know, I'm, I've been writing books for a long time, curating books for a long time, and I love enlarging the field to something like rock, you know, rock and roll photography or sports photography. And the other thing about, I think, being so focused on the photographers is that one thing that I've been thinking a lot about this this season while I'm watching games is that the the photographers who are sitting underneath the basket, uh, who often get very compelling shots, um, have to be prepared for players to to run into them all the time. Um, and so they're they are a part of this uh, space as well, like the physical space. They, at least in in basketball, the photographers are not always that far removed from the action of the game. Um, well, you know, we were talking about Andy Bernstein. He took me to the Staples Center at once, so I could see how he works. I mean, he's sitting right there, and yes, you're right. Players can run into him, but he has remote cameras taped up all sure, over. Yeah. Um, the arena. I mean, when he clicks his camera where you see him, about six or seven other cameras are going off simultaneously. I mean, it was quite a breakthrough when somebody first put a camera under the net. Um, You know, all of these you can mark when somebody, you know, got a camera behind the net in a hockey game and saw the puck coming right at them. Um, So, yeah, they're still photographers the you know before the advent of television <coughs> they had a lot more flexibility where they could stand but now they're playing second fiddle to tv cameras so they're put often pushed out of the best positions and have to huddle together you know in some corner area and a lot of them you know uh, moan and remember the good old days when they had much more freedom. Right. And it's so interesting because I also think about from the player's perspective, at what point do they become comfortable running into a crowd of people or falling into a crowd of people holding all of this sort of sharp, fancy equipment? And when do they feel comfortable doing that? And when do the photographers themselves also feel comfortable with those the players coming at them and stop sort of putting up their hand or, you know, being worried about being hit? Well, I think that's when you have your press credentials and um, you have to assume that everybody in that perimeter are professionals and all the amateurs are up in the stands. Yes, that's true. Right. <laughs> Yeah. um, One of the images from the book that really stood out to me was of the uh, ski course in Bosnia. Um, So the space that had been sort of built out for the Olympics, and then how is that space being used later on? And I think that it's hard to be a critical thinker about sports without acknowledging and especially, you know, the the arenas and the, the spaces that sports take up without acknowledging that often uh, what was there before can no longer be, and people are displaced and communities are, are gone because of uh, the Olympics or uh, the World Cup or a new, are- a new basketball arena going up somewhere. And so I really appreciated that aspect of the book too, these sort of quieter parts that we're not always thinking about. They're certainly not glamorous, but they are very important. And, and controversial. Yes. Um, those photographers who have documented the aftermath of Olympics all over the world um, are, let's put it this way, um, the IOC is not going to give them a one-person show. <laughs> because Probably not. Some, sometimes these arenas and stadiums are repurposed and used. Sometimes there's just no money to maintain it. And they become real slum areas. Um, and so it depends a lot on the politics in the city that has held the Olympics, whether any contingency has been made for after 
you know, the closing ceremony. And often there's just such a um, frenzy to raise the money for the Olympics, get everything built, that the aftermath is really an afterthought. And that's what um, uh, the photographers um, who have documented these cities around the world um, are trying to show that the, this is a architectural, sociological, cultural, and political issue. Yes, and it's such important. It's so important to me to have that range of of stories within the book because there are the sort of um, louder moments. There are the sort of quiet contemplative moments, like the image of Kobe Bryant with his feet in the ice and his finger in the ice cup before the game. Um, and then there is what, so what is the effect of, of sports, like on these other, you know, after the game, what happens or what's happening in the stands during the game. So there's this full spectrum of the exciting to the contemplative to the effect, the impact that the the sports have, whether it's exciting and good or questionable and controversial. Oh, thank you. I, I try to show a very wide range um, of different types of photographs and different ways of thinking about sports. Yeah, I think it's important because it it's all it's all part of the story and the the narrative of of. It's just they're hard to separate, so it's really important to have all those different layers to to fully understand sports as this cultural force. It is, <laughs> yeah. And th were there any? Are there any images or yeah, any particular images that during this process you know really stood out to you? Um, where you're just like, that's a for sure. Um, I, I've been asked this question many times, and when you look at God knows how many thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures, and then you do a book with 283 photographs, in a way, they're all my babies. Yes, totally. Because I have to defend and justify every single one. Um, and I think like... You know, like with music, at different times, you need or want a different song. And I think, you know, when you are a photography curator and author, at different times, you'll spend more time looking at one picture over another because you need to understand something. And then, you know, a month later, you might be attracted to something quite different. So really in my books, when I do a history, I try to make it as rich and diverse as I can. So it, Who Shot Sports is a photographic history from 1843 to the present. And just technologically, you know, what a 19th century sports photograph looks like compared to a photograph taken with a drone, you know, in the 21st century. Yes. Um, that also has its own excitement and, you know, different kinds of energy. Definitely. And I think that, um, again, it's this idea of not just the, co the content of the photo giving us multiple uh, sort of aspects of sports, but also the way the actual pictures are framed so is it a landscape shot of a certain space that this that this particular game or meet or whatever is taking place on, or is it just the athlete with everything else cropped out I mean the way that the photographer chooses to tell that story is also plays so much into a role of how we what we understand or what we can glean from that moment right and uh, people um reading the book or visiting the exhibition immediately noticed how um, many different types of sports are illustrated, how many different photographers there are from all over the world. 
I, ha- I was the curator of the Royal Photographic Society of Great Britain in, in England, and I have a lot of European friends who, when they heard I was doing this project, said, Gail, please, don't have it just American football, baseball, <laughs> and basketball. And I said, I wouldn't do that. And I, I had a, a, an important African curator and writer come to see the exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. And, you know, he was very skeptical because he just thinks that everything is so U.S.-centric yes. all the time. <clears throat> and he was testing me, really. He went around and finally he found me and he said, I can't believe it. He said, I had a list of all the African and Asian and, you know, European and all the photographers I could think of from all over the world, and you included so many of them. He said, I've never seen an exhibition in the U.S. that is so international. And I said, well, sports is international, and there are all kinds of sports. I mean, in, um, I mean, in different parts of the world, you're going to have different sports, but they all are, have a kind of similar quality because people love them. I mean, in the Basque country in Spain, you have people lifting boulders and tossing them and competing, cutting down trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. not your usual sport, but if they don't keep on doing it, it will disappear just like a language needs to be used um, and maintained. And so that was I wish I had found more, um, say, Chinese photographers. It was very hard to communicate, basically. You sure. Know, we take it for granted. We can send emails and get answers and have links. But some countries, it's really still very hard. But I think there's a lot of range in the book, and I like that. I have a photograph from Yemen <laughs> and from Mogadishu mm-hmm. and from South Sudan and from India, um, as well as, of course, you know, many, many photographs from the United States. But when people think about iconic photographs, I did a little um, game almost. I asked my American friends to list what photographs what sports photographs they consider iconic. Then I asked a German friend what photographs they consider iconic. Then I asked <laughs> a Russian, I mean, I asked different nationalities sure. to just say, well, which, which pictures do you think are iconic? And they're totally based on the nationality. I mean, a Frenchman does not have the same list of iconic pictures as an American. Mm-hmm. And that's why when I said I steer away from you know, thinking about iconic because it's so particular to what country you're dealing with. Right, the ling- like the, the language of sports there, and and how we, how we, what we remember in our sort of shared psyche. Right. I mean, you know, uh, a, a a Brit would be horrified if I didn't have something to do with cricket. <laughs> yes. And you know, most of the world would be horrified if I didn't have great soccer photos. Yes. And I think some of the images, they, uh, there's some, I think towards the beginning of the book, there's some mountain climbers uh, when, but this was during the time when wet plates were still being used. So uh, they're, the photographers are taking the large format camera and the plates um, and a little tent up this mountain to, to right. document it. And I think that even just thinking about sports in a ex- more expansive way, so it's not just the certain games that you identify with, but that it's like physical exertion with some kind of goal, um, with some sort of point of, okay, you are now the best, or you have now won this match, or whatever it is. There's, yes, like you're saying, there's just a million different expressions of that same idea. Right, and and photography can't always capture that, but great photographers come very close to 
depicting that that diversity, that energy, that passion and love that we call you know sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really love seeing all the different interpretations and this other image that you have by Rich Clarkson of the the diver um, who hit his head on the board. Um, that being this incredibly haunting, quiet image where we're anticipating and we know what is going to happen because we're looking back at it. But just this, uh, yeah, it's it's very haunting. Right. And, you know, I do my research. I saw the whole contact sheet. Yes. And, you know, it's, he... He, I, I interviewed him. I went out to Denver, where he works, and you know, he told me that he always would shoot a whole roll of film. And so the first half of the dive is absolute perfection, and then you see halfway through the roll him hitting his head, Greg Luganis, and then from perfection to it you know it totally gets lost in you know in anything we would assume would be a correct dive by one of the world's greatest you know divers and then he ends up disappearing in the water and you know it was the preliminary rounds at the olympics and he did have, you know, he. it became quite a big scandal, of course, because at the time of the accident, he hadn't disclosed that he was HIV positive, and nobody got hurt, and the water wasn't contaminated, um, but it's, it's so much more. But you're absolutely right. It is such a haunting picture. Kanaf, my publisher, was thinking of putting it on the back cover. Mm. <laughs> no, I don't wow. think it's, but, but you're absolutely right. It is totally haunting. Did you consider including that whole contact sheet in the book? Um, I'm um, just thinking about when I first saw the, like, you know, the other images that were taken the same at the same time that Dorothea Lang took Migrant Mother or Nick Ut took the napalm girl image, those other images are so, it's just such an interesting thing to see the, the outtakes. Um, so yeah, yeah I'm just right. wondering, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. No, I, I have done that. I, I wanted to blow up this particular picture because of it being so powerful because his legs are still mm-hmm. in perfect extension and so half of his body is perfection, and the uh, from his waist up, he's hitting his head. His leg, arms come up to protect himself. Um, but right now, this week in New York at the International Center of Photography, an exhibition open that's called Contact High, and it's contact sheets of hip hop photographs. And so the contact sheets show you all the photographs that weren't selected for the album covers yeah. or for PR. Um, and it is very interesting. And so I agree with you. But I I thought about it for a little while and then decided not to. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think there's so much value in both because the contact sheet, you know, would give us, I mean, I'm just, in, in my head, I imagine him just disappearing into the water. And that is also this very, um, just giving me a lot of images in my head. Uh but then I also just that he, that he's floating in this giant blue space that takes up the whole page also has this extreme impact. Yes, it's terribly hard because you want to produce a book that is affordable. Um, and if you put in everything that you think would be interesting, sure. um, instead of a $45 book, you end up with a $90 book and nobody wants that. Yes, that's what I guess the skill of an editor or uh, yes, I mean, just as far as like honing everything down so that you're adding to the story rather than repeating. Right. Yes. Um, the other 
part I wanted to ask you about is from the beginning of the book. Um, and I'm just going to read a, a, from your introduction, if that's all right. Um, sure. So art, like sports, depends on belief. In art, one has to believe that a picture is richer, more nuanced than it might initially seem. In sports, one has to keep believing in one's team, win or lose. So I... I'm wondering um, when you first had that throughout this process, um, and maybe you knew this before you started the book, but I'm wondering when you came to this idea of art and sports sharing the need to believe. I think it evolved. Um, I, I'm not a sports fan, so I don't have a team. I don't, you know, watch regularly at all. But my son-in-law is a fanatic <laughs> for the Patriots and the Red Sox. And my grandchildren, when they were, I mean, they're only four and six now, but even when they were like one and three, had to watch, wear their jerseys to watch the game. Wow. They had to believe their team was going to win. They were taught to believe <laughs> and that if they didn't believe, they might jinx the team. Mm -hmm. And even if they were a thousand miles away, <laughs> they had to believe that the Patriots were going to win. And as, as far as people believing in art museums, I think, you know, I think we all, you know, are standing in front of Picasso and somebody is standing next to you and says, I think my six-year-old son could do a better job than that. Uh -huh. And yes, if you don't believe that there's something beyond what you see, some power. strengths of ability to create in abstract and meaningful ways, then you won't see anything other than what's in front of you. But if you believe a photograph, for example, um, by Edward Weston of a pepper, it could be more than a pepper, then all of a sudden a world is open to you. But if you only ever see it as a pepper, it will always stay a pepper. And uh, I, I, I think that keeps us going. And to bring it back to how we started our discussion, death as closure is the end of belief in, in something. You know, we can no longer believe in Kobe Bryant's next career or the next great thing he's going to do. But while he was alive, we wholeheartedly believed in the man. We believed that anything he did, he was going to do with greatness. And um, that's a belief we have. And I think when we have an artist we love, we believe that they're going to teach us something. When there's an athlete we believe in, we're going to believe there's something superhuman that, you know, we're human beings, but we can't do what our hero, the athlete, can do. And we have bodies, they have bodies, but somehow they soar and we stay grounded in awe of them. Um, so... I don't know when that belief came, but I think it's you know pretty basic. Yes, it seems so. It seems so straightforward and obvious. But there was something about. I don't think it's the way that we're normally sort of viewing these things. This this idea that that we need to believe in more than what we're just than what we're seeing, especially as visually inclined people to to be reminded that that is necessary to experience both of these forces at their at their peak. 
I, I think so. And certainly um, sports and dance have much in common to um, taking the body to its limits. And yes, we can see the instant replay, and we, you know, but it's exper- it's happening in real time, and I think that adds enormous um, excitement to the experience. Definitely, there is something. Um, I mean, as we were talking about with the um, this cultural shared cultural moment we're experiencing because of the loss of Kobe Bryant, his daughter. Um, there's also moments in sports when I've watched certain games and certain plays or events have happened and I'm like, I'm always going to remember where I was when I saw this <laughs> and, you know, who I reached out to grab next to me. And that that is can be a very, I think that can be a healthy dynamic within the world of fanatics <laughs> to to experience it as, as a group and uh, as a point of, bringing people together. I, I, th- I think so. My, my son lives in Barcelona, and the second most um, popular museum in all of Spain after the Prado is um, FC Barcelona's <laughs> Barca's yeah. museum. And it's, um, I mean, it, it's a pilgrimage. You know, people want to see these relics, the jerseys, the shoes, the old photos, the memorabilia, the shots of their heroes. Um, I, I, I think it's pretty healthy. I, I don't see a downside, um, you know, as, as long as, you know, each community is rich and embraceive of everyone in the community because there are a lot of kids who don't want to spend all day Saturday chasing a ball and they'd rather paint a picture or be in a play. Definitely. Okay, we'll take care. All right, thank you so much, Gail. Bye-bye. Bye.